Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy, and today we're joined by Robin Goldberg, Certified Eating Disorder Registered Dietitian. She's here to talk to us about a lot of the stuff that clinicians miss about clients with food issues that come up. She's a very dear friend of ours. I've known Robin for quite a few years, worked with her on some cases before, and such a phenomenal wealth and resources here to talk to us about some of the stuff that we just don't have come up unless we work really in-depthly into the the world of disordered eating and eating disorders. So very happy to have you here, Robin. Thank you so much, Kurt and Katie. It's, it's such an honor to be on your show. Yes, we're super excited. And I am... I have to be honest, I wasn't aware of all of the things that went into being a registered dietitian. And you're also a nutritional therapist, right? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. So, so what, what that means is I actually help people connect their feelings centered around food. I'm, I'm not a, a mental health clinician, but I think oftentimes people associate registered dietitians as people that put them on diets or meal plans. And I want to say that's like the passe way. And unfortunately, there's not <laughs> some that exist, whereas the more and more of, of my colleagues were nutrition therapists and, you know, we're trying to get more and more dietitians to be certified eating disorder registered dietitians because that helps clients with insurance reimbursement and it's the highest level of certification in the eating disorder community that one can obtain. And they have it for mental health clinicians as well and physicians, all ancillary health practitioners. Nice, nice. So that explains your certification, which sounds like there's a lot of, as Kurt was describing, a breadth of knowledge and a depth of kind of resource, a depthful, I think is what you said, Kurt, but a a very deep resource that local clinicians can reach out to to learn more about this stuff. But let's kind of step back and just, if you could tell us a little bit about your practice. You're in the Los Angeles area. Just tell us a little bit about what you're putting out in the world, where you're practicing, that kind of stuff. So I have a practice in Beverly Hills for the last 21 years where I see kids, teens, tweens, and adults with body image issues, eating disorders, and medical issues. As I started my career at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, I was the cardiac dietitian for five years and then shifted into the Department of Gastroenterology. So my overall platform and foundation and how I work with people is really to help them develop food freedom and develop a a joyful, which sounds very scary for many of us, a joyful (laughs) relationship with food and their bodies is, you know, diet culture teaches us that we must eat a certain way and look a certain way. If not, we have failed when, when in fact, it's really getting back to that primitive place that we were all born and, and blessed with of being an intuitive eater of eating when we're hungry, stopping when we're satisfied and honoring cravings without any guilt or shame 
And, and by doing so, when we function that way, our body will be where it's naturally meant to be at for that individual at whatever stage of life they're at. So it's not about counting, weighing, and measuring. It's not about saying I'm excluding a specific food or food group. It's it's really learning how to become present and conscious when, when we're eating, which definitely parallels the, the health at every size paradigm, which I'm in that community. That sounds great. I love that idea that intuitively we really know how to eat and that you're able to help people. Yes. And you know, to get to a place where there can be this genuine place without feeling you have this recipe to follow for success is, is really what I like to help clients achieve. It's a, it's a slow and long journey and can definitely bring up a lot of feelings, which is the reason I like to collaborate with mental health clinicians, because then they can really, you know, unpack that on a, on a deeper level. I know for me, and I tread carefully into the work that I do with clients presenting with eating issues or eating disorders, and it makes things very easy when they self-identify these issues from the initial phone call, that when they are pointing out that I'm having restriction issues or I'm having binging issues, not all of the clients that I've worked with that have food-related issues or food-related emotional issues self-identify that from the very beginning. And this is something that I've learned to increase my intake process and be able to look at how I ask clients from the very beginning about their relationship with food. This is something that I had to come across in even some of the shared work that I had with some of the cases with Robin, some of the other dietitians that I've worked with. But Robin, what do you recommend that clinicians look for from the very beginning or maybe even add into their intake paperwork? So several things. I really appreciate and respect, Kirk, that you've tried to broaden your screening questions because I think for for many clinicians that I work with will say, I don't work with eating disorders or I don't treat them. And anyone that sits in, in anyone's office could have, they may not have a full-blown eating disorder, but they could have disordered eating or thinking. So the first thing that I would actually suggest is that the therapist really explores their association with what rabbit ears, I'm going to say thin or rabbit ears fat is. Unless you've been challenged, one is living with a certain belief system because this is what our culture has ingrained in us, especially. And being able to explore our own biases Because if we're not aware of our own biases, we can do more harm than good as mental health clinicians, being able to explore your own biases of what quote unquote thin is and what quote unquote fat is, is is really necessary before you go to the next level of those evaluation questions. In different communities, there's even a different tolerance for different types of behaviors. I know one of the things, I, I live in the beach cities, and, and there's a lot of orthorexia, which is that whole idea of super over-healthy eating and, and restricting in that way. And it's something where being able to really identify how impacted am I by that with the whole clean eating movement and you know just so many pieces where you know what is healthy, what's not healthy, what's thin, what's fat. I think that's a really good place to start because even if you're asking the right questions, if you're not really understanding the answers from a really neutral, objective place, you may be missing stuff anyway. Once clinicians kind of have their stuff, at least they understand it. Maybe they don't have it in check, but they, they understand it. What are the, the assessment questions that you think all clinicians should do? Because I know that, that I don't specifically have a part of my practice that's for eating disorders yes. or disordered eating, but I know what comes into my room and I've had those conversations with clients. Yes. 
But how do I make sure I'm screening right away for it? Well, I think the first thing is not to assume by how an individual looks that like they can't be sick enough or they live in a larger body and they would never assume that this person has eating disorder. So I think assuming that a person looks emaciated is, is that, oh, they have an eating disorder. Maybe these are the genetics. Like mm-hmm. all of our bodies are predetermined from the day we're born and who we're going to take after in our life, but how we're going to look. So that's the first thing is not making any assumptions. Also, yeah, I want to say that eating disorders come in all shapes, sizes, genders. I mean, walk down the street, anyone around you could have some sort of food or body image issue. That's very important. Also, being able when, when someone expresses their own views about, I like to use the term joyful movement, activity. And as you said, Katie, living in the beach cities, where you're experiencing as, as I am in Beverly Hills, quite a bit of orthorexia. And for our listeners that don't know what that is, it is the obsession to be healthy to an umph degree where it affects their personal life, their emotional life, that they have very rigid parameters living in a box and what they quote unquote can and cannot eat. And if it doesn't fall into that, then they live in this very, very narrow world. You know, I think that those are just some things I wanted to say right off the bat. And certainly I can, you know, talk about statements and questions that, you know, an individual might make, which could be like, oh yeah, I'm going to ask about that. When should clinicians be worried about the eating patterns that clients are demonstrating or talking about? For instance, when, and I work a lot with adolescents, but if I have a 15-year-old who has all of a sudden pushed into a vegetarian diet or to adopt one of the other diets that might be running around in the news, when does that become a concern versus when should I really respect a client's choices as far as how they go about looking at their food and their food intake? The clients bringing up their food choices is if it goes to a place of that they like to eat alone, they don't want to eat with their family or friends, it gives them anxiety and what that's about and being able to process that on a deeper level, because they might say, oh, I was always judged by my dad, or, you know, there was nonverbal looks, you know, presented to me. So that's one thing. Also, when a a client has, you know, they feel guilt about eating anything, not just a particular food or food group, and then they feel the need to exercise after, or they're cutting back, or they're restricting, and it's normal to have fun foods in our diet. It's normal to have what I like to call effective foods. And when a client is phrasing, well, you know, I had some Doritos and now I'm going to go to the gym. That's a red flag in, in the beginning. Also that they are not flexible with food choices, times of eating. If they will go out to a restaurant again, it's a very narrow world that, that they exist in. Potentially even just an observation when you're Sitting with a client, you see that their hair is thinning or falling out. And I know kind of then there's a lot of health questions I like to have unfold after that. But you know, if you see someone who's always like putting their hand through their hair or they're brushing, you're like, oh, this person like has pretty hair. I mean, this is common in males amongst females too. Then you could start to probe questions about, well, have you noticed that when you brush your hair, like more hair comes out than usual or on your pillow or in the shower. Oh yeah. And it's like assuming their labs are normal, which we can talk about. And there isn't a thyroid abnormality, 
that's, you know, another place, depending on your level of comfort and asking that. They lack variety. They eat the same handful of foods over and over again. Well, how can you eat the same handful of foods over and over again? Well, I like them. Well, you're a teenager. What if, you know, you went to, you know, dinner with your friends for pizza Friday night? Oh, I would meet up with them after. It's like they have all these reasons and excuses in regards to the reason that they're not able to be in that circle, which then is an idea of like, okay, there's something going on and or even they compulsively weigh themselves. Like I have a teenager I see who originally came to me from her therapist actually, because they were talking about the anxiety she had traveling to another country. And the client was like, how am I going to put my scale in the luggage? So then the, 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 so the therapist asked about that a little bit and it's like, but it's very common that our younger clients can learn these behaviors from other family members. And she's become so entrenched in her values and self-worth are tied into what the number says. That's just another one. Another thing could be that a person is not going to go on that vacation or they're Mm -hmm. not going to buy a new outfit until they're at the right rabbit ears weight. Like what is the right way? It's like the place we're at. So if we're a female able to menstruate, if you're a male, that your testosterone levels are within normal limits. Like these are all indicators that your body's in a healthful place for you. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of rigidity. I mean, there's, there's medical stuff, which I think a lot of therapists may not be comfortable addressing because there's a lot of different reasons. Somebody's hair could be thinning that we have no idea about someone who's emaciated or has a larger body. There can be different reasons and it can be healthy, even if it looks different than what, you know, fashion magazines tell us is healthy rabbit ears. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. But it sounds like there's just this, a lot of rigidity and, and really restricting, even if it's not restricting food, it could be restricting yourself from different areas of life, hiding out and eating behind closed doors so that people don't see what it is you're eating or not eating certain types of food or or not allowing yourself to enjoy life. And it seems like as therapists, we would notice this, but but my sense is that we probably miss it more often than we, we think. What do you think that therapists most often miss when they're working with somebody that maybe has one of those either subclinical or well hidden eating disorders? You know, one of the things, Katie, and I think it is I'd say somewhat medical, but I think it's a question that any therapist can really 
tap into. If a client is coming in and they're speaking about like, oh, I have a stomach ache or I have an upset stomach. And it's not just like, oh, once in a blue moon, it's reoccurring. You know, it's like, oh, did you just have lunch? Did you just you know, eat something that you hadn't had in a while or food poisoning? Stomach problems for rabbit ears, whether it's constipation, whether it's GI, gastrointestinal distress after eating, it's reflux. These are all symptoms of a person who is not eating the amount of food that their body needs. The good news is that this can all be resolved with what I like to call vitamin F, which is food. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's common because a lot of people see, we'll say, I get so much anxiety when I go to therapy or talking about such and such. So the anxiety, we, we get those butterflies in our tummy. And I think to be able to talk about like, what's that like for you? How, how, you know, what went on in your life today? And those are some unfolding questions that can occur in in a mental health clinician session. When a client is identified as needing a dietitian or needing nutritional advice for food plans, there's a lot of scope of practice issues that come up, a lot of scope of competence issues. A lot of times the treatment team will include a psychiatrist. What do you recommend that people look for in building a treatment team for a client who's facing food issues, eating disorders, disordered eating? It's, and and you probably see this, whether it's psychology today or these other like preset platforms, it's like check off, check off. Yes, I specialize in LGBT issues. I specialize in disorders. How, How come you're an expert in eating disorders? Have you worked in an eating disorder treatment center? Are you recovered from your own eating disorder? So ideally, like we want to have a team. And by the way, going to the occasional lunchtime session or webinar that's about eating disorders <laughs> does not make you an expert. It's, yep. it's going to our national eating disorder conferences, the Academy of Eating Disorders, which going to IADEP, which is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, not just locally, it's like going to the headquarters of where these national conferences are because you're aware of what's the latest and greatest in the eating disorder world. So if this is out of a, a clinician's scope of practice or expertise. Like I had this addiction therapist say to me like, well, I think I can work with this eating disorder patient because there's so many parallels with addiction and eating disorders. I was like, not really. I mean, I ran a number of body and eating disorder groups at a few female sober livings. So unless you live and breathe it like I do, mm-hmm. you're really not an eating disorder expert. And I think just ethically and having the professional integrity to be able to inquire if you don't know clinicians or going on one of the mental health clinician listservs to say, who is a male eating disorder therapist? And, and by the way, like that I'm a certified eating disorder registered dietitian, there's for mental health clinicians what's called SEDS, Certified Eating Disorder Specialist. And it's not just like, oh, okay, I work here occasionally. We, we have this elaborate resume test, the whole thing you have to go through to be there and being able to find an eating disorder therapist, an eating disorder trained dietitian, eating disorder trained psychiatrists, which that's harder to find. We have fewer of them. And then, of course, an internist or a pediatrician that I want to say is 
if we have an expert, great, there's even fewer of them than psychiatrists, but you can really encompass the entire team and be well-armed and not feeling greedy or needy that you're not going to have another client because that clinician can do more harm than good. I think that's a really good point because I think there's a lot of people, I include myself in this, who shy away from really digging into eating disorders because I realize that the training needed really is specialized. I try to stay aware so that I can really know when to refer and know how to be sensitive to the subclinical eating issues. But I think what what really is important is is identifying where is the correct team that can help these clients because this is... I, I feel like in a lot of ways, this is one of those, those issues that, that therapists uncover and, and work with that is life or death. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff, but this is, and it's so medical. And so I really appreciate your, your description of how someone really becomes a specialist in eating disorders. Cause I think a lot of people, they poo poo it, they, they take it lightly. Yeah. And so there's that piece, but there's also the folks who either are not aware that they're not identifying people who need this type of treatment or who just shy away completely. And so they don't even ask the questions. And there's people who are kind of hiding in the shadows with their eating disorders and getting treatment that isn't necessarily addressing the right issues. Definitely. I mean, I think Katie, I couldn't have said it better myself. And truthfully, like sometimes as you both know, we can't pick the teams we're a part of. Mm-hmm. There was a client that was a part of a team. And then secondarily, the eating disorder piece came up in conversation. Maybe they were coming to you for life transition or anxiety in school or bullying. And it's like, oh yeah, you know, I have, you know, been told that I'm fat or I have been told that I won't be on the track team if, you know, I don't look a certain way because I won't be fast. Like these things can come up in conversation because when you think about it, the therapist has a golden opportunity. And it's oftentimes like Kurt's the dad, Katie's the mother, I'm the aunt. Like we're the only safe people (laughs) that our clients have. Mm -hmm. So more and more golden nuggets are dispersed in those sessions. And if we don't know what to look for, we could miss them. And it can be really, really hard. For these for sure. To the help you they miss need. the boat. Also, if one is not resolved their own issues, these clients are very savvy. They are super smart. And if they see that a person has not resolved their own stuff, they will be on to the next person. Because oftentimes they know the language. They've been down this path many times. I mean, I have so many physicians and other clinicians I work with, like, I had no idea. Like, I'm seeing a pregnant lady with bleeding nervosa and her gynecologist like, I had no idea, Robin, that she's purging during her pregnancy. I'm like two or three times a day. Oh, wow. Speaking of being on treatment teams where not everybody is going to necessarily have the same lengths, where I often run into this is when it comes to some of the medical professionals who don't have the training in eating disorders, and I often find myself mostly from stuff that I've learned from Robin, but (laughs) requesting them to look at things from a medical perspective that they never would have thought to ask. And I think that even some of this stuff, I don't always necessarily understand why I'm asking for certain blood tests to be done. But when I do point them out to the internists, they're like, that's a really good idea. How did you know to ask that? Can you maybe walk us through a little bit of things that you find recommending to medical professionals in order to look at how a client's relationship with food is affecting their physical selves? Definitely. Well, the first thing I want to say is that oftentimes 
labs are within normal limits. They don't show everything, which is the reason their vitals, vitals are blood pressure, pulse, capillary fill time, a whole multitude of things are needed to be done after each time. Like I see clients oftentimes more often than they go to their doctor. So I do all these tests with them. And so this is how Kurt's become, you know, more of an expert than most through the, I'm going to say harem of dietitians he surrounds himself with. (laughs) (laughs) So with this, the first thing I would say, because there's so many, if it's a female estradiol, that's hormonally related and based on like if they're not menstruating too, and our estradiol level changes through each age period. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like if you're a teenager versus if you're menopausal and that's just one, and like with a male testosterone, because basically as I develop a relationship with males, I see they feel comfortable. I mean, in so many words, I ask them like, are they able, you know, to wake up in the morning, you know, having some awareness of what their body's doing. (laughs) (laughs) Can say erection if you want to. (laughs) I know if I have to be politically correct on here. (laughs) No, no political correctness required. (laughs) Right. Can you get it up? (laughs) There we go. There we go. So in addition to these hormonal tests, the estradiol and the testosterone, are there other things that you recommend that patients ask or that therapists suggest to their patients that they ask for? Correct. And, and their thyroid panel, their T3, T4, TSH, these are all the components of their thyroid. Because like I was listening to a client today who's 19 and went to her internist and she's like, oh, you know, I don't, I've never had a thyroid issue. I said, you know what? That's because your body is in a starved state. You do not have to be on thyroid medication. And as one is increasing their intake, the thyroid function all becomes normal in addition to actually the cholesterol. If you're malnourished as well, you'll have a falsely elevated total cholesterol within that lipid panel. Also, iron levels. It's very common that clients you know, have anemia. Amylase and lipase, if clinician is concerned about them purging, and I'm referring to purging meaning via vomiting versus purging through compulsive exercise. Amylase and lipase are reflectors on A, like one last time was someone purged and where their body is at. Those are just a few. Oh, also magnesium. If their nutritional status is, I mean, there's so many, I'm just kind of giving (laughs) some highlights, but magnesium, if they're starved as well, phosphorus, like when we're going through refeeding syndrome, which is basically increasing their intake and puts them in a higher metabolic state because your metabolism you're making work, you know, phosphorus is like a very important lab in being able to reflect that. And what I say to clinicians, if they go on the Academy of Eating Disorder website, there's a whole downloadable pamphlet that gives all of the labs that we would recommend to have done in addition to like the bone density, EKG. I mean, there's many of them. So I just wanted to give a little snapshot. That is so helpful. Cause I think as a clinician, I wouldn't necessarily say, Oh, I, I want to make sure that you get this blood work done because I would worry about scope of practice, but knowing kind of from what you described, what the, the logistics are, the reasons are for those. And then having a downloadable 
thing that the clients can take with them to their doctors. That just seems so helpful. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so I oftentimes I make a list and I'll give it to the client and they'll just give it to the physician or the medical assistant in the lab. And after they get the prescription for the order. And, and again, it's not always going to show everything over time. It will. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. And this has been my experience, and Robin's by far way more of an expert in this than I am, but... I remember working with some of my early clients showing eating disordered issues, recommending them to go get a physical, a blood test done. And all that doctors were screening for was a lipid panel showing a slightly elevated level of cholesterol. And all of these things that Robin just described weren't even screened for. So there really is a fundamental lack of training in a lot of different areas, mental health, medical health surrounding eating disorders that we all need to at least be looking at as far as a at least a screening factor in order to get clients to people who are more experts, more sensitive to some of these issues. But it starts even just with conversations like this to raise some of the awareness and recognize where our limitations are. I, th- I think that's so important. And to that end, I wanted to ask another question because I think oftentimes what I've seen from from the people who I see is that they will they'll have a health coach or they'll be talking to a nutritionist or they'll they'll or they'll be with a dietitian and I think a lot of therapists and in our first conversation Robin I re- didn't realize that there were big differences can you speak to the differences so people can be aware of how to best refer because I think when this stuff is coming up we need to have a dietitian but I I don't know that people know why Absolutely and and I want to just say it was in between what what Kurt said and what you said The other type of person that I think really needs to understand and be aware of this are the coaches that our clients see. Their high school track coach, the football coach, the gymnastics coach, the tennis coach, because it's so common and and being a former college tennis player and a triathlete, these coaches really want to push each person to their fullest maximum potential without recognizing the language, the stigmatizing wording they're using is doing more harm than good. And like, yeah, the, you know, they're not menstruating, they have sleeping problems. So these are all things that are important. Um, Regarding the health coach, I'm sorry, repeat the question. Sure, sure. So oftentimes, I think as therapists, when we get these clients who are coming in that maybe are you know, they might present it as self-esteem issues or, or I need to diet or I'm overweight. Like they're not presenting it as eating disorders. Oftentimes they'll either try to, you know, kind of start working on things related with a health coach or, or a nutritionist and, and some will seek out dietitians, but I think that the therapist community may not know the difference. So if you can describe the differences and kind of pros and cons of. of okay, diet. sure. Okay. So I'll start with the Rolls Royce of options, <laughs> a registered dietitian. So to become a registered dietitian and our credential used to be RD and now we're called RDNs, registered dietitian nutritionists. 
to the Academy of, of, of Nutrition and, and Food Science. They changed their name recently, so I still have like the old one in my head, but through, through the Academy, an individual is required to obtain their bachelor's or their master's in dietetics, which like where I went to school at Cal State Northridge and a lot of schools have the same department. It's under the Department of Family Environmental Sciences. So one obtains their bachelor's or master's in dietetics then we apply for a dietetic internship, which is like residency. It's computer matched. So I did mine at Virginia State University, and I was there for a year and a half. You have rotations in all these different elements. You're in a dialysis center. You're in a community health center. You're in an outpatient diabetes center. I was actually in the state penitentiary, mental health, all kinds of environments. I was in a private practice, which is helpful to allow you to become more well-rounded, of course. And every dietitian does this. You know, you have the hairnets, you're learning about <laughs> whatever size scooper this is, serving gumbo. I mean, I did all of this. And then you're eligible to take the nationwide examination, which has areas that I can't even tell you I practice or remember anymore in my career. <laughs> and every single dietitian does this anywhere you live. Some states have an RDN, registered dietitian nutritionist. Some states have RDNs, comma, LD, licensed dietitians. And that's licensure, where what that means, and I know people still do it, anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. The postman, the guy at Whole Foods, the guy who puts gas in your car. Oh, what is your standard of experience and credibility? Oh, I've been reading about health and nutrition for years. Oh, I ran the LA Marathon last year. Okay, yeah, you're an expert. So <laughs> anybody can say they're, they're a nutritionist. So I always like to start off on the right foot just to be politically correct because all dietitians are nutritionists, but not all nutritionists are dietitians. But I appreciate that distinction, and I'm assuming – nutritionist and health coach are just two different titles for pretty much the same thing. Yeah. So you, you know what? It's interesting, Katie. I, I was speaking to someone a couple of years ago. I, I knew from the gym that was looking to change careers and through her own history of orthorexia nervosa, I was like, well, I really like to go to school to be a registered dietitian, but I don't know if I can get through, you know, the two years of chemistry and the two years of biology. And this, this is a long time to be in school. Like maybe like, what do you think about me taking one of these like online courses or a weekend? I was like a Mickey Mouse course. I mean, I was just <laughs> very forward. Like, yeah, I could be like a health coach. Well, I know health coaches that are ethical. They are intuitive eating health coaches. They've gone through the intuitive eating training. So they are a certified intuitive eating counselor. Mm -hmm. So anybody can be it. And the, the two authors, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, actually go through and screen each person. You have to go through this workshop and this test and this whole thing. So I know health coaches that stay within their scope of practice. And when it gets in over their heads, they refer out or they, you know, collaborate with dietitians. I feel like that's rare mm -hmm. and hard to find. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, you know, needle in a haystack. So a health coach, I never, you know, truthfully have understood the premise and what that's about versus you're looking for the cliff notes version versus putting the hard work in. 
if, if, if that makes sense. I mean, I know life coaches who are wonderful, mm-hmm. but a life coach and a health coach are different. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think to me, what, what you really have brought home is that we need to make sure that we're assessing the other professionals that we're working with. And if we're really working with disordered eating or, or a lot of food issues, we need to find the dietitian. A nutritionist could be somebody that's just interested in nutrition and has no area of, of expertise. There's also health coaches that could potentially have some great coping strategies. But if they start talking about diet plans and, and food plans and, and nutrition, we should get a little cautious because they don't have that training. Robin, where can people find out more information about you? My website is www.askaboutfood.com. And my Instagram name, Robin with a Y, Goldberg RDN. We'll include links to both Robin's website and her Instagram in our show notes, as well as a little bit of a write-up about some of the blood tests that Robin was talking about that you might want to recommend if your clients are needing some of that medical component. If you ever get a chance to hear Robin speak, she talks at some of these conferences worldwide. She travels all over the place. She's a wealth of knowledge. And if you are in the Los Angeles area and can plan out your lunches like three or four months in advance, you should definitely get on her <laughs> calendar. Uh, she, she knows some of the best restaurants in town. But you can find our show notes on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. While you're there, check out our conference, the Therapy Reimagined Conference, coming up in October 2018 here in the Los Angeles area. Two days and 14 CEUs about crafting better clinicians to better serve our clients, and it's generously sponsored by Simple Practice. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy and Robin Goldberg. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.